you put your finger on something important, let's use the words liquid and solid. We live in a more culturally fluid and a more economically fluid world now. People changing their lives, changing their genders, there's immigration, there is globalization. And neither the right nor the left are happy with half of that. And so the left wants cultural fluidity with economic solidity. The right wants economic fluidity with cultural solidity. And it turns out it don't work that way. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Mark Lilla. He is a political scientist, a historian of ideas, and a professor of humanities at Columbia University. Lilla is the author of The Once and Future Liberal, After Identity Politics, as well as The Shipwrecked Mind, On Political Reaction. Lilla thinks of himself as politically liberal, but is an outspoken critic of identity politics. In the interview, we try to pin down the precise historical moment when the Democratic Party and the left more generally lost the working class. We also try to answer why so many colleges offer courses on transgenderism, but none on evangelical Christianity. Our conversation was originally recorded last October. The opportunity to interview Lilla came up very quickly, and because of that, the audio quality is less than ideal. But the content should, hopefully, more than make up for that. Mark Lilla. So you're no big fan of identity politics, and you don't pull any punches in terms of your critique of identity politics, but you have a very interesting historical, I would say, narrative surrounding it. You break down American political history, or maybe intellectual history, if you want to use that term, into two dispensations, the Roosevelt dispensation and the Reagan dispensation. I'm sure that you would agree that this is somewhat of a simplification, but you find it a useful simplification. Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to emphasize is is, I guess, the distinctiveness of the Reagan period in our history. I think now that we're at the end of it, or I think we're at the end of what I call this Reagan epoch or Reagan dispensation, I think we can see a little better what it was and the coherence of a certain kind of, as you said, political thought and political practice that existed before from, let's say, the progressive era or the 1930s down until Reagan's election. And with a little distance now, actually the election of Donald Trump, I think, brings into focus what was going on in the Reagan era and why and in what ways Trump brought an end to it. And that helps us see further back. And yes, I mean, it's a way of just getting a general focus. It's not a contribution to the history of various facts and movements. But but, but to pick up really the two tenors of the mood of the country, even, I mean, what I want to stress with the idea of these dispensations is that they were really visions of what America could be and should be, and visions of what constitutes the good life. 
And in the Reagan era, it was clear that the vision was of a country of rather independent individuals who are capable of governing themselves and they live in families and small communities and churches, but that government and political power in general is to be distrusted. And the assumption, the fundamental assumption, being that the less government does, the better everyone off will be. If I'm understanding you correct, you have an interesting way of charting the Reagan dispensation. In a way, you chart the rise of identity politics as part of the hyper-individualism that you see as part of the Reagan dispensation. Exactly. I mean, just to say a word about the Roosevelt dispensation, I think what was governing there was a sense of solidarity among citizens. So an example I give in the book is that even when Republicans were in office during this Roosevelt dispensation, they had to meet the public expectation of social solidarity. So as we know, the first president to propose a basic minimum income and national health insurance was Richard Nixon. It was not mm -hmm. a Democratic president. Similarly, during the Reagan years, Bill Clinton had to take the fundamental presumptions of the Reagan era, neoliberal assumptions, as given and then try to form a democratic politics in that. And But couldn't you argue that Nixon was responding to a Democratic Congress and was compromising with still the earlier Roosevelt dispensation? Or is Clinton enacting what you call neoliberal policies? Was then it still part of the Reagan dispensation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That certain fundamental ideas or outlooks or presumptions about the human person and human society kind of govern. And so to get back to your earlier question, the election of Ronald Reagan clued us into, I mean, retrospectively certainly helps us see the way in which a kind of individualism was developing in American society, not just in what Tom Wolfe called the me decade of the 70s, but also because our families were changing, our cities were changing, we're living in suburbs, families, uh, white people are living in suburbs, I should say. Families are getting smaller. Americans were moving a lot back then, so parents didn't live near grandparents, and children when they grew up didn't live near their parents. And we became much more cocooned, I think, as individuals and as families. And so one political side of that, it was in that kind of historical moment that Reaganism made sense. I mean, had Reagan developed his ideas of the city on the hill and governments the problem in 1941, he would never have had an audience because the society was, it didn't correspond to what the society was like. So the, the individualism within the country became hyper-individualism. But I think that's one of the things I would maybe press you on a little bit is you, in your portrayal of the, this transition in intellectual history from the Roosevelt dispensation to the Reagan dispensation, you portray it as if Reagan made maybe a fundamental turn and made us more individualistic. But couldn't you argue that American political culture was always hyper-individualistic? I mean, we are the country that made Horatio Alger a number one bestseller yeah. in the 19th century. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I see the period from the progressive era down to the 60s as an exception in American history because we are fundamentally an individualistic country. But what happened during this period is you had mass industrialization, you had the growth of major cities, you had people leaving the farms, 
you had the depression, you had the dust bowl, you had all these things where suddenly it became clear that we're not just individuals, that we live in a society and that our destinies are codependent, that there is such a thing as the common good, there is such a thing as a common destiny, and that's why it's necessary to work together and have a sense of both rights, but also a sense of obligation towards our fellow citizens. Once the society started changing again, what Reagan did, it became hyper-individualism when it became an ideology, right? And so there was a social reality that Reagan turned into an ideology. And then what happened on the Democratic and left side is an ideology also developed based on this new social model that we were living that was more focused on individuals and private experience and all the rest. And so these two things marched hand in hand. They both reflected something about the new society we're living in. You see a lot of similarity with the new left and the new right. So the new left focused on a certain kind of hyper-individualism on the social side, and the new right focused on a kind of hyper-individualism on the economic side. Yeah, that's right. Though it has to be said that originally uh, the social movements that developed out of the 60s, even though they were about you know, particular individual rights of people who are in groups, they were focused on demanding rights through the political system. And so the early identity groups were focused on power and focused on governing in order to, or at least having an effect through the political institutions. When you say early, you mean early New Left, or do you mean early civil rights, or do you no, mean no, both? I, I guess it runs from the civil rights movement, but the civil rights movement inspired everything else that happened in the 60s. So, mm -hmm. so then you had the movements for women's rights and gay rights and, and all the rest. And um, so at first it was a, an impulse also coming out of the confrontational politics of the 60s into 70s, that was focused on for you know, fundamentally changing American law, and that's a political process. What happens after that, and I think the era, the sort of where we are now with identity politics, mm -hmm. it's become a cultural revolution and a cultural politics rather than a politics politics. It's focused on changing hearts and minds, gaining social acceptance for groups and individuals. It's about social recognition. And so the battlefield has shifted from Washington to Hollywood, to newsrooms, and to universities. Todd Gitlin calls this the right marching on Washington while the left marches on the English department. Exactly. So I'm assuming that you would agree with that oh, yeah. kind of description. Yeah. No, we're good friends, and I'm so much now we see eye to eye. Where, though, does this transition from practical politics, I think in the book you describe it as just politics, to movement politics, you also use the term pseudo-politics. What is the specific moment. It seems like, and I'm just going to throw this out as a suggestion, but it, it's in part based off of your own work. It seems like maybe the moment is almost the Moynihan report. Explain what you mean there. Well, so this, the moment where you can chart the left, if we want to use something so, so big and broad, transitions its attention to elections, governance, administration. Oh, to, you the reaction to the Moynihan report. That, what I meant was the Moynihan report is maybe where you can chart the reaction to it and where people like Moynihan and others who we might see as part of the old New Deal Roosevelt left leave. And not just the people of the old guard Democratic Party, but many of their followers and what was termed at the time the silent majority, etc. No, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's perfect. I mean, to look for a date like that, the reaction to the Moynihan report, which completely blindsided him. I knew him slightly. He worked, he worked for Johnson. He also worked for Nixon, fighting for the same things. But the reaction there surprised 
surprised him and worried him. It worried him because it showed that a certain symbolic politics was taking over from a kind of practical politics where you would want to know certain things if knowing those things could allow you to help people. But suddenly there was a taboo around a subject, which was the black family. Well, you could talk about families in general. I mean, right? Isn't that part of the transition, the reaction, the idea that you could, in a governmental policy, talk about how many kids someone was having and with how many fathers or, or whatever was off limits. Because the family became this enclosed thing. And, and then there was, you know, I don't know if your uh, listeners know this or remember this, but at the end of the Carter administration, there was a conference on the family in Washington, in the White House. The whole thing broke down on defining what a family was. And that was kind of the last gasp of the Carter administration. That was the end of the road for a certain kind of liberalism. And they, people couldn't even agree on what a family was to think about how to help families. When I look at your critique of the left, and if I'm getting you correct, you see yourself as a person of the left. I see quite a bit of social conservatism in it. What makes you still somebody of the left? Oh, for me, left and right are positional terms, and they're relative oh. to a center that moves. And the center of this country has moved right, and that has just put me just objectively on the left half of the country and the left half of opinion. You know, essentially, I'm pre-McGovern Democrat. That's what Pre-McGovern? Pre-McGovern. Tell me a little bit about what that means. Well, that means what you were just talking about with Pat Moynihan, you know, mm -hmm. with that certain New Deal tradition, a Democratic Party rooted in blue-collar workers and in their communities and their families with respect for the way they live, their churches, their kind of view of what it meant to get ahead. You know, things changed. The McGovern moment was, was a moment. It didn't have so much to do with McGovern himself, but uh, it brought about huge changes in the Democratic Party. It used to be that mayors and state representatives often were guaranteed seats for the national convention. Uh, presidential campaigns were not driving the party as they are now. There were these smoky rooms, whatever you want to call them, where people thought about the strategy for the party as a whole, taking different interest groups into account. And what happened after the McGovern moment is that presidential campaigns took over along with social movements. And what disappeared was a kind of sense of a party that had a common good, which was governing. Because if you do not govern, you cannot not only make progress, but you cannot defend the progress you've already made, which is the big lesson for the world we're living in now. And so presidential campaigns are just interested in their candidates. Movements are interested in their particular issue. That's what movements are for. That's what they do. But meanwhile, no one's watching the store. And that helps to explain a lot about the decline of the party. So but there's a specific ideological background as to why there's been this transition towards movement politics, or as you call it, pseudo-politics, and this ignorance of local politics. Why is it you have specific answers, you believe, for this in terms of why so many people on the left no longer want to run for school board or even necessarily do the kind of door-to-door -door pamphleting and campaigning that's necessary to elect somebody to city council? What are the causes, its relationship to identity politics that you unravel? Well, the background fact to be kept in mind in talking about this is that the Democratic Party lost the working class in this country largely, except for public employees. Starting around with yeah. the Onionhan Report, right. right around the same time. And it became a party of educated elites, minorities, and public unions. It's the class thing, it kind of cultural class, I might say, question that is predominant here. Because suddenly you had people who were forming liberal opinion, which now is no longer in the party so much as in Hollywood in the universities and in the press, who 
grew up in around people like themselves. They've been able to socially reproduce. They get their kids into the right schools. They live in blue states. They see the world in a certain way. And they simply lost human contact with the rest of the country. And also because they're reproducing, there isn't even memory in families of way back when, when someone just had a job in the post office. From what I remember from your book, you use the example of college towns as being almost the quintessential piece of this. College towns are places where you can be almost divorced from the rest of the American political culture. Right. And, and, and even social culture to a certain extent. Yeah. And, and getting involved means working on recycling and all these other things that are nice for little utopias. They become little utopias and you let in enough homeless people to keep it real, to make you feel you're still <laughs> dealing with America's social problems, but you have no human connection with, in these places lost in the middle of nowhere, you have no connection with a town 50 miles away that votes 100% Republican. They're just down the road. It's not hard to go there. It's not hard. But they don't go there. They don't go there. And, and what do they do? They send their kids to Nicaragua to build houses. They send them to the West Bank to work with Palestinian women, all sorts of good things. But the idea of going to the middle of Texas or the idea of going to Flint, Michigan, working with people and convincing them, people have very different experiences, is something they won't deign to do. And this is a democracy, and democracy means many things, but it means not only that the people are supposed to rule, but it really is rule from below, that you legitimize democratic government by having it rooted in the consent of those roughly at the bottom third or so. And if you don't have that, you are essentially an oligarchy, and you can be an economic olig oligarchy, you can also be a cultural oligarchy, mm -hmm. which is what we're developing in universities, the press, and in Hollywood. And, and, or even just because in the media more broadly, Obviously, you have some right-wing media outlets, but in terms of the, the media that holds the most sway, it's probably fair to say that most of the people who work in those outlets come from these institutions. Yeah, I'll give you an example. One out of every five adult Americans self-identifies as evangelical. One out of five. One out of five. Those who self-identify as transgender are less than one-half of one percent. But if you were to look at the catalogs of courses in universities and look at left-wing publications, you could be forgiven for thinking that one out of every five Americans was gay or transgender and that one half of one percent of the country was evangelical. I'm joking a bit, but it does, in terms of awareness of people's problems, that is the reality, I think, in the well, liberal mindset right now. Well, isn't there also this just an element of even dismissing the problems of the white working poor and the white working class? I mean, this is to a certain extent what the concept of white privilege allows for, is you say, well, you know, yes, you might be poor, but you have white privilege still. So kind of the implication is your problems don't really matter. Yeah, it, that's part of the cultural snobbery. Also, I think it shows up in the desire to explain the outrageous conditions for so many in which so many African-Americans live today, especially in our big cities, on the basis of racism. Fighting racism doesn't demand anything of you, mm -hmm. but getting your words right and tweeting mm -hmm. every once in a while. But if you really want to help people in the south side of Chicago, that mm -hmm. requires some hard thinking. Just before um, our interview, I was looking at CNN, and by now your listeners probably will have seen it, but there's a conversation between Kanye West and Donald Trump in the White House today. And Kanye West is singing the praises of Trump by talking about the need to develop businesses in poor areas, mm -hmm. to train people and give them the habits required for operating in business. 
and to encourage some, not only self-esteem, but also encourage people to go out there and take control of their destinies, mm -hmm. right? And those sound like right-wing talking points, but he has street credibility about this, and this certainly is part of it. But that would require sacrifices, it would require money. It would require being able to talk about social right. problems that are there, and we run into the money hat report. Sure, problem. and then also, if the businesses don't succeed, then you have to answer why. And you can't necessarily just blame it on someone else, right? Yeah, not so just they, explain so why. Very difficult yeah, not just explain why, but mm -hmm. figure out why. And Th then, that's what I meant. And then help people, mm -hmm. right? If mm -hmm. it means that people have not developed the wherewithal to do this, or there's not enough, of, especially a social network, you know, when immigrant groups come here. Are discussing, you have to try to build up a culture, specifically amongst the black community, of small business ownership in those communities that will work specific to those communities. Yes, but I worry about saying that because that then becomes an easy way for people on the right to dismiss the problem, whereas the left wants to explain it by racism, the right wants to say it's culture. You don't don't just invent a culture. A culture can grow up over generations mm -hmm. of people succeeding. It means going on the ground, seeing, giving a helping hand, even in just a day-to-day -day way, even if it means sending people to be in people's shops and mm -hmm. help them learn how to do things and especially not get discouraged, right? Because it's so easy to get discouraged if you haven't seen this work for other people. It's so easy to be deflated. People need a lot of encouragement. You know, there, there should just be a massive effort to help. They're focused especially on African Americans, not minorities in general. But we have a huge debt to repay to black America, mm -hmm. and that requires a lot of hands-on piecework. Going back to our earlier part of the conversation, so it seems to me like this is why you would still consider yourself a person of the left, perhaps because you see the government as having a substantial role in making that happen. You don't see the preferable way to make that happen as outside the government through voluntary institutions or voluntary networks. We know now. We've had the Reagan experience, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that these things are not out there, and we know they're not doing their jobs, right? The voluntary networks working on that specific problem. The voluntary networks, the churches mm -hmm. that say they're going to set up charities. So much of their efforts are going into politics right now. And it's not just a question of having a soup kitchen here or something like that. This requires the state. And the state is required. And in every other country, people understand this. The well, there are some that are more individualistic than us. I mean, like Hong no, Kong, wouldn't you say? Nowhere near. Nowhere near. The states are massive there. And they're intrusive. And we need, frankly, a more intrusive state when it comes to helping certain populations in this country. Because otherwise, we just explain away failure. And the whole point is not to give moral praise or blame to anybody. I'm only interested in what works. And what does not work is making a vague appeal to the markets, to mm -hmm. social networks works and a charity. But isn't there a substantial amount of danger that maybe the political right is identifying correctly to a certain extent where if you fill some of these government networks with a bunch of technocrats who were from a lot of the same culture that we just described earlier, which is quite disconnected from the realities that people face and have different priorities, then not only is it wasted money, but in some circumstances it might be counterproductive. So isn't it a matter of necessarily government possibly being good and also possibly being bad? Doesn't it have to be That's done always, correctly? That is always mm -hmm. the the case. But we have a prejudice in this country, especially pronounced since the Reagan years, that government is the problem. Now we know for a fact 
that a lack of government is a huge part of our problem. Mm -hmm. It is why our workers don't have training. It's why they aren't protected if suddenly a factory leaves. It is why they have to worry about having insurance when they go to another job, which makes it harder for them to get jobs because employers don't want to have to pay for it. All of this is the problem of minimizing the important role of government. But more important than that even is that we have a federal system here and we can use it. And states are much more active right now in doing this, but they mm -hmm. need general federal leadership. Mm -hmm. But it's not you just have technocrats in Washington. I've worked in Washington. Mm -hmm. This image there are technocrats. That mm -hmm. is ridiculous. They work through state officials and local officials. Mm -hmm. You can work with community groups and involve mm -hmm. them. Absolutely. But you need direction and money from the top. And that is why I'm in the Democratic Party. That's why I'm a liberal. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, a conservative in the way that's defined today. In terms of finance and government, economics. In terms of our obligations to our fellow citizens. And that is one of the key things you seem to call for in this book, is this idea of citizenship. And this is where identity politics has really failed people, because the identity politics milieu is to use the word I and to focus on the self and to bring the attention back in an almost narcissistic, if not narcissistic way, to the self. Whereas to become citizens, we need to use the word we, and we need to focus on how we're obligated yeah. to each other. Exactly. And it's not just identity politics. It's been much more... In the Reagan period on the political economic side. We are a society. We are not a parking lot. This is not a campground <laughs> where you pull your RV in and you plug in the electric and the water and get on the Wi-Fi. This is a republic and it was founded by citizens to help fellow citizens. We have social obligations, we have political obligations based on that. We're the only country in the world that has trouble getting that right and realizing that. And the more interconnected the world becomes, the more our workers are subject to fluctuation in the world economy. The fact that you can transfer billions of dollars in capital with a click on a keyboard means that you need more affirmative government action to protect ourselves. You see, the contradiction on the right is that they want a globalized economy without the kind of active government that is required to cope with the problems that come from a globalized economy. If you want to have that economy, then you need bigger government. Well, isn't or, it also worth just mentioning the whole concept of a globalized economy by its very nature is interdependence? Well, like you could argue that you have, right. you, that you're autonomous if you go back to the Jeffersonian ideal yes. of the yeoman farmer, or you can argue your independence at that point yeah. in time. But if you're in a globalized economy, isn't it by yeah. its very nature? Precisely. You know, you could be an economic nationalist. Economic nationalism is a coherent position. It says that we don't want to be so subject to the fluctuations of these things. So we want tariffs, we want barriers, we want less immigration, and we want more help for our workers. And so there's an economic nationalist position that is coherent given the situation we live on. What's not coherent is to want part of that without wanting the necessary second component because we have thrown our workers and our family to the wolves. And we've done it because, in fact, we've become wealthier as a nation, but you know the class gap is enormous. And look, if you want cheaper flat screen TVs, great. But it means that you need social protections there. So if one morning this country is no longer economically competitive for making them, the people who live in communities where they're made and build their lives around it and are older and cannot change their jobs are taken care of. Mm -hmm. If not, it's criminal. 
So this is what I think is interesting about your position, because it's not necessarily a position that you hear that often anymore, because most people associate this push for greater protections for workers and on trade and for greater benefits and social welfare. And the term welfare liberalism isn't used as much, but they tend to associate that with identity politics. Those two things have kind of been melded together, probably unfairly. So your position to a certain extent is almost revanchist for lack of a better word. I mean, you want to bring people's attention back to the way liberalism used to function well, in no, the New Deal era, in the Roosevelt and dispensation, as you called it. I've also just written a book on political nostalgia, and I'm opposed to political nostalgia, and I find it a trap. No, I just want people to be realistic about the world we live in now and to not have any taboos about how we look at our society today and the problems that are there, and any taboos also about the economy and certainly taboos about the state. We've gone way overboard on that. But you put your finger on something important. Let's use the words liquid and solid. We live in a more culturally fluid and a more economically fluid world now. People changing their lives, changing their genders. There's immigration. There is globalization. And neither the right nor the left are happy with half of that. And so the left wants cultural fluidity with economic solidity. The right wants economic fluidity with cultural solidity, and it turns out it don't work that way. Either you live coherently in a more or less liquid world, but those things go together. But instead, we have two ideological parties that want to cherry pick what the new world offers them. And that's why we're in the terrible position we're in. Going back to this concept of cultural solidity, isn't it to a certain extent that the left wants that also, but just that they want to almost force it in a tyrannical manner? I mean, you see this through universities deplatforming people, and isn't this to a certain extent part and parcel of the whole political correctness project to try to demand that people share your values, demand that people accommodate your way of looking at the world culturally? I think what's gone hand in hand, and it's a contradiction on the left, is is a recognition of cultural plurality and fluidity. And in order to protect that, refusing to accept a diversity of opinions. And so in order to defend this new liquid culture we have, we have to use sometimes Stalinist tactics mm -hmm. to enforce certain political views. But the point is to have a cultural where this fluid in the sense that life becomes an adventure of self-creation. You can define your gender. You can decide how much you identify with various groups. And you welcome immigration. And you welcome cultural influences in everything from music to whatever. And you're just more comfortable in that kind of world. But isn't there quite a bit of hypocrisy in that, though, too? Because they're not, as you just alluded to earlier, welcoming a certain cultures. I mean, they're not interested in trying to understand what's going on in the less urbanized areas of the country yeah. and the less globally connected. That's not a cultural milieu that they're willing to incorporate into their concept of diversity. Yeah, now that you put it that way, I would say that they're open globally, but closed nationally. Mm -hmm. And it's suicidal, because if we get back to politics, and not cultural politics, but concrete politics, the more you pursue that strategy, the more 
you're going to drive people to the right for cultural reasons. You see this today? Mm. This study, Yasha Monk wrote up in The Atlantic, where it's based off of a quite a large study. It was in about 150 pages when I downloaded it by five or six different scholars entitled Hidden Tribes, the Study of America's Polarized Landscape. Mm. And what they find is that almost everybody hates political correctness. So just to read from it, because I think it's quite pertinent to what we're talking about. They call most members of American society the exhausted majority, as in they're exhausted with political correctness. And among their polling, some full 80% of people think political correctness is a problem. And it actually does not correspond to race as much as you would think. In fact, whites were less likely to find political correctness a problem as Asians. Hispanics, even more so. So the stats they put out are Asians, 82% of them found political correctness a problem. Hispanics, 87%. American Indians, 88%. So there's quite a few assumptions that go on within this culture, which, as you describe yourself, is quite elite, centered around elite colleges, quite wealthy, as the study itself I'm just referencing found. But there's this assumption that all these other groups that they think that they're being sympathetic to agree with their perceptions. But it's not actually the case. There's this perception amongst the identity left or the cultural left, as the term Richard Rorty uses, who I'm sure you're familiar with, that their views tend to coincide one for one with minorities. That mm. most people agree that almost all minorities agree with them. What the study illustrates is that's not true. It's not true. I mean, just on basic things having to do with sexuality. There's discomfort in the African-American population with homosexuality. And people forget that Hispanics are very Catholic and they are not happy with abortion and various other things. It's very striking. I have to look at this study, obviously. But that assumption that you share something is a kind of noblesse oblige. Mm. It shows how cut off you are, even from the people. I have to tell people who don't know this in universities that something like 19% of Hispanic men voted for Trump, something like that. Or maybe it's high, maybe 29%. Yeah, I think it might have been higher. Yeah, but 29%. It was high. And there's the reality, but also the perception that exaggerates it, that immigrants in particular places lower wages for mm -hmm. other people who have stood in line. It's very easy on the cultural left to live in a kind of symbolic world. And there's a kind of snobbery involved in it where I have in my mind a picture of what black people are like and what they want and what Hispanics are like. And they're all minorities and therefore they have views that coincide. Mm -hmm. But the moment you plumb with statistics and look at the different views on politics, different views on family. So even among minorities, the views are very different and also shifting. Mm -hmm. So as certain groups like Asians become more economically and socially successful, they're becoming more conservative. And one writer whose name I'm forgetting right now said the longer a group is in the country, the more diverse their views yeah. are going to become. And the other thing is also, isn't there something to reifying these terms that aren't real, like the concept of Hispanic? Everyone who speaks Spanish is of the same mindset. So a Cuban-American is the same as a Mexican-American, is the same as a Nicaraguan-American, is the same as an El Salvadorian, is the same as a yeah. Colombian. I mean, this is a construction as much as anything. I'm not sure anyone fully believes that. But where it shows up is when people on the left say in debate, speaking as an ex, right? Speaking as a woman, speaking as a Latina. 
as if my category gives me special insight into a world and I have a privileged view because of my identity when in fact people with the same identity kind of have very different views. Right. I mean, who appointed you the spokesperson of your group, especially a group as large as if you're in the defined, you know, I am as a Mexican American or as a Indian American, it's a pretty large group. You don't speak for everyone. But isn't there a pivot within that, as you just kind of mentioned, that it gives you a certain kind of power and cachet in the culture of left-wing elites to speak that way? There's a reason why people speak that way yeah especially in the classroom yeah i mean it's yeah. a way of shutting down debate to a certain extent right and so what replaces debate is taboos so we have taboos about saying certain things or who can speak about what and in what way certainly the thing that frustrates me the most because i'm also a writer these kind of formal and informal speech controls about which words can be used for mm -hmm. what. I got an old copy of a book that Diane Ravitch did some years ago on children's books and how they become just totally boring because they aren't adventure stories or fairy tales. Nothing scary ever happens. It's kind of just meant to be books that show certain groups and certain light mm -hmm. and everything. And we have sensitivity editors now at publishing houses and at freelancers. And they have lists of words and locutions that shouldn't be used. And what Diane Ravitch, who's a woman very much on the left, but a free speech defender, she somehow put together from various sources different words into one list. And so, for example, you would never say in a children's book now, a child, let's say Nadine, you would never say Nadine's mother and father. You would say Nadine's parents because some people don't have a mother and a father at home. Mm -hmm. And the idea somehow, it's a very simple mimetic view of moral education. Show people good things and they become good. You know, mm -hmm. that idea goes back to Plato and it's ridiculous. I mean, our psyches are much more complex. So if you read someone like Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote a book on the uses of enchantment, children learn what good is by seeing very bad things happen in stories, but good not winning. That's how it happens. Mm -hmm. You have to show them bad stuff happening. So our psychologies are more complex, but we have this simple minded notion that if we just clean our books and scrub them clean of anything that might disturb yeah. someone potentially and of course kids don't pay attention to this stuff anyway but what we end up doing is not producing books that successfully pass on a morality so magazines this happens all the time the first time it happened to me i remember was back in the 90s which was sort of the first wave of pc and i published a book i mentioned tocqueville alexis de tocqueville and I said, for someone like Tocqueville, a man who lived in the 19th century, and the editor had changed it to the person, as if, <laughs> as if the fact that Tocqueville wore pants couldn't be introduced for fear of offending somebody. It was extraordinary. But I mean, you see this in so many different facets today, but I want to go back to this concept of morality for a minute, though. How much of this relates to the decline of participatory religion? If I'm understanding your biography correct, at one point you studied theology. Right I was a teenage evangelical. There are critics of the left, from the left, who someone like Christopher Lash would say that this decline in the participation in religion, that you have to connect this on some level to the rise of this fervor of cultural righteousness. 
Do you see a connection there? Uh, yeah, I do, in fact. Though this happens in waves in America, right? We have to remember that. We have culturally puritanical moments, and we have moments of total decadence. Now we're living both at the same time, which is what makes <laughs> things a little weird. You know, the way I like to put it is that liberals have left the church for the world, and they turned the world into a church. We have to separate things. But it's much easier to do cultural politics and moral politics than it is to do institutional politics. Is going out there, persuading other people, and doing the hard work of compromise. There's a taboo about any kind of compromise. Even the word shouldn't be used. It's trade-offs, you know? There are trade-offs in politics. One of the definitions of politics is compromise, if you look it up on the OED. Yeah, I mean, but compromise, I think, sometimes is taken to mean that I give up half of what I believe, for, and you give up half of what you believe. You can hold on to what you believe. But in the practical world, you sometimes have trade-offs to be made. And in order to satisfy one value, you have to give up on asserting another one at a certain point. You still hold the value, but you don't make it a stumbling block in something else. It's not as if the moral life is a puzzle where all the pieces fit. We live always in situations where we have to trade one completely good thing for another completely good thing. That's adult life. But if you're righteous, and if your focus is on righteousness and purity, then compromise is a degradation. It's an abomination even in some circumstances. And so if politics is the search for purity, is the search for righteousness, then it makes sense that you wouldn't compromise. You don't want to go talk to people who you don't see. Well, it's a question on whether you want to see righteousness in the world or you want to make sure that you're pure and clean. That's true if you want to be pure and clean. But if you want to see the reign of righteousness, you need power. And the only way to get power is to make trade-offs. So if you want a more moral world, you have to dirty your hands. That's the nature of the world. But it makes sense why if you're obsessed with righteousness and you don't acknowledge that that's what you're doing, and you're obsessed with purity and you don't acknowledge that that's what you're doing, yes, yeah. that you wouldn't be able to right. and, acknowledge and, what you just said. And, and there's a difference between New Testament and Old Testament righteousness, right? The New Testament is about purity within. And in the Old Testament, it's about bringing God's judgment down onto the world. And if that means you have to conquer somebody, if that means that you have to lie to somebody, a lot of lying in the Bible for the good cause, because you're actually trying to change the state of the world and not just your own mind or even other people's minds. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I uh, hope your talk goes well today and that we'll talk again in the future. Thanks. It's been really stimulating. Thanks a lot. You bet. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major and minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.